Well, guys, today we're going to start talking, we're going to start the book of James. We're going to talk about all kinds of things in James. James is one of my favorite books. All right, James chapter 1. Guys, you got Bibles in front of you. I would love for you. We're going to have some of the verses up on the board, but I still would like you to have a Bible when you come. Bring your own. If you don't have one, let us know. We'll work out a way to get you one. Okay? So, little brief introduction on James. James... There's there's some debate on who this James is, but we are going to take it as most scholars do in some of the biblical facts, says that this James that wrote this book is the half-brother of Jesus. Okay, that's very important because we're going to get into it. So, James is the oldest of the 27 books in the New Testament, which means it was the very first book written. And the majority of scholars, like I said, believe James is Jesus' half-brother. But what you may not know is that Jesus had four brothers. Yeah, four. And at least two sisters. In Mark 6 and Mark 13, it references these four brothers. Their names are James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. Jude also wrote a book of the Bible, an epistle that we'll, we'll get to eventually. But James is listed first. Now, back in the culture of this time... If you're listed first, you're the oldest. So he's the oldest next to Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn through the Virgin Mary, as we're taught. All right? So they all lived in a carpenter's house. Now, just think for a second how many people that is. You have Jesus, Joseph, Mary. You have four brothers. That's seven. And at least two sisters. That's nine people. Now, we don't know exactly how many sisters Jesus had. We just know that it says in references in Mark 13, his sisters. So we know there's at least two. So there's a minimum of nine people in this house. Now, this is Nazareth that they live in. Okay? Joseph and Mary, Joseph's a blue-collar worker. You know what that means? We don't make a lot of money. Blue-collar workers are the ones that are out in the fields. They're tending to the flocks. They're shepherds. They're carpenters. Um, your everyday jobs, grocery store clerks, that's blue-collar work. Security officer, blue-collar work. Okay, we don't get paid a whole lot, so we have to work very hard for what we get. It's no different for Joseph and Mary. It even talks about, uh, further in Mark, that when they came to offer the atonement for Mary before Jesus was born so that she would be pure, they, if you look back at the law, the law requires that you sacrifice a lamb. Joseph and Mary couldn't afford a lamb. So the law does make provision for that. Then you're allowed to bring two turtle doves, one for a burnt offering and one for a sacrifice to the priest. And so that's what they did. Now you may be thinking, why is Matt trying to confuse me and tell us all this extra stuff? Well, one thing I want you to really pay attention and hone in on tonight is James was not a Christian until after the resurrection. You get that? Let that sink in for a second. He grew up with Jesus. He was his brother. The two oldest normally shared a bed. Now, like we said before, this is a very small house. Nine people, they're all huddled together. I guarantee you, they didn't live in an eight-bedroom house in Nazareth. Okay? He wasn't the uh, carpenter to the stars. Okay, so very small quarters. So this guy gets to live with Jesus in the same bunk bed, if you will. He gets to spend day in and day out with Jesus. How awesome would that be? But even though he got to spend that much 
of a proximity to Jesus, he still didn't believe. He didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was and that he came from the Father and that he was God. He didn't believe until after Jesus died and came back. Now, you, again, may be asking, Matt, why are you telling me this? Jesus' whole family didn't believe. Your family, everybody in it may not believe. It's a great testimony with James's life because you get to see Jesus never give up on his family. He never gives up on the people that he cares about, his loved ones, his friends, his brothers, his sisters. He always is the nurturer, the one to come up. Can you imagine? Have you ever hurt your mother? Why can't you be more like your insert sibling? You ever had that happen? Ever had a parent say that? Why can't you be more like your sister? Mine said it all the time because my sister was the good one. I was the one that always got in trouble. They'd be like, literally, don't touch that microphone. And I'd look at it, look at them, look at it, start edging over to it. Don't touch this one. (laughs) That was me. So you can imagine, I got in trouble a lot. But Jesus didn't do that stuff. He didn't pick on his brothers and sisters that we know of. I mean, how crazy is that? He'd be like, you know what? Jesus, you were all right. You treated me good. He must have really been a nurturer to his family. And he, like I said, hmm? well, I'm talking about his siblings, not his mother and father. They knew because the angel came. They believed. But his siblings, none of his siblings believed. Jude didn't believe till later. James didn't believe until Jesus appeared to him. Can you imagine that meeting, though? Your brother, you just watched your brother die. You just watched him say, it is finished. And then he comes back three days later and appears. The Bible talks about it. He appears specifically to James. Probably because he knew what he was going to do with his life. He knew where James was going to go. He knew James was going to be such a stout follower of Jesus and of the word that he would eventually give his own life and be martyred. James was stoned to death. And it says, one of his nicknames, and I love this about it, one of James's nicknames was Old Camel Knees. Pretty weird, huh? Have you ever seen a camel's knees on a picture? They have these really big calluses over their entire kneecaps. Now, the reason James was called Old Camel Knees is because when they went to bury him, uh, Tortuli, which is a, um, it's a historical site, they said that when they went to bury James, he spent 8 to 10, 12 15 hours of the day on his knees. He spent more time on his knees in front of the Lord than he did on his feet. Wow. I'm, I'm, I'm in the ministry. <laughs> I, I study the word, and I still have a hard time finding time to bend my knees, much less spend eight hours of my day on them, praying for my friends, praying for my family, praying for my country. Because, guys, that's what we're meant to do. That's what we're called to do. We have to talk to our Father that's in heaven. James is an excellent example. Now, a little bit more on James is he's, he doesn't joke around. He is straight to the point. So much so that it slaps believers in the face because we get convicted by the stuff that he talks about, which we're about to dive into a little further. So, we've talked about his four brothers. At least two sisters, nine people, small home. 
right? So now we know a little bit about James. Now, James also has, like I said, he's a no-nonsense guy. He's always straight to the point. Did you know that there are actually 50 five chapters of James? 50. Do this. Do that. Don't do this. Do that. That's how James is written. He's straight to the point. And the reason he is, think about how he grew up. He grew up with Jesus. He grew up seeing hypocrisy. Probably was guilty of it himself. I've been guilty of it, as we all are. We all fall into those little pitfalls and snares that entangle us, that are set by the enemy. The Bible talks about the devil walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he's going to devour. Let that sink in, too. Walks around like a roaring lion to seek who he can devour. Guys, all he wants to do is just get that foot in the door. He just wants a little bit of foothold in your life or just throw enough distractions at you to where your focus is off of God. If he can get you through the temptations and the trials and the things that go on in your life, he's winning because he makes you not effective for the kingdom. So James, his whole mission was to combat this and to tell you that, guess what? Not only are you going to go through trials, but I want you to have joy when you go through them. It's crazy, right? I've already lost you. Joy through trials. Joy through the hard times. How hard is it to find joy sometimes in life? Pretty difficult. We go through some pretty dark valleys. Death of a loved one. Hard. I hope none of you have boyfriends and girlfriends. You're all too young. A breakup. It's hard. A divorce. is hard. Both for the kids and the adults. We go through all kinds of things. Your friends at school may be talking one way, swearing, cussing, talking about what they're going to do this weekend. Guys, that's all distractions from the devil. It's all the enemy trying to just throw all these slings and arrows and traps your way just so he can distract you, just so he can take your focus off of God. So let's look at James chapter 1. This first section, we're going to look just 1 through 4. And it's going to be profiting from trials. Now, you may think this is, again, a crazy concept, but just stick, stay with me. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings, my brethren. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect, complete, not lacking nothing. Now we're going to break this down a little bit. So why would you consider it pure joy when you're facing trials? Well, let's look at it. Without trials, we never mature as a Christian. Without making mistakes, right? How do you learn? Do you learn from making a mistake or are you always perfect? We make mistakes. All of us do. Well, guys, those are the trials. It's, it's what we do through them and who we rely on through these trials that are going to make you either a maturing Christian or a backsliding one and ineffective. I want you to be that maturing Christian. Because look at what it says here. It says, my brethren, count it all joy when. doesn't say if. doesn't say that it 
may come. It says when. Guys, if you're not in a trial right now, that's great. There's one coming. If you are in a trial right now, I want you to be able to ask God for wisdom through that trial and know that he provides a way for you to stand up under it. Now, it says, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So, any of us in here claim to be perfect? I don't. I make tons of mistakes. But it says, when you make those mistakes, have patience. Let it work in your life. You're going to go through the trial regardless. Now, I hear people say, well, Matt, you just don't understand what I'm going through. You're right. I don't. But I serve the one who does. God does know what you're going through. He knows because he's allowing it to happen. What you have to start asking yourself is instead of, why me, God? Why am I going through this? Why do I have to do this? Instead, ask yourself, why not me? Why shouldn't I be going through this? Instead, ask yourself, what is God trying to teach me through this? That's where the maturity comes in. The immature Christian blames everybody else. Doesn't ever take a look inward. Doesn't ever look at the heart. I'm like, Matt, well, you don't understand. I'm, I'm praying. I'm praying to God every day. It just seems like my prayers are just hitting the ceiling. I'm not getting an answer. Does that ever happen? You pray for something and maybe God's silent? But is he really? The most frustrating time in a Christian's life is when God says, just wait. Just wait. Because we don't know what to do. We live in a day and age now that you have tablets, you have cell phones, you have internet, you have social media, you have everything you want at your fingertips. You want to order something from across the country? Guess what? You can do that. But you know what hasn't changed? Even though we have all this technology and all this, the same trials and the same temptations that the devil used back in Jesus' day, they're the exact same as now. They haven't changed. It's the same yesterday as it is today. There's nothing new under the sun, the Bible says. But you have to ask wisdom. So without trials, I'll never mature as a Christian. That says in Hebrews 5.8 mentions that. Without trials, I'll never mature as a Christian. And then it also says in several different places, John 8.31, Matthew 24.13, Hebrews 3.14, 10.35, and 39. Perseverance through trials proves my faith to be genuine. You show me a Christian who's never gone through a trial, I'll show you a liar. Okay? It's impossible to be able to follow God and not have those trials come into your life. It's impossible because you know why? We live in the world. Guess who has dominion here? The devil. He gets to go and to and from. He gets to poke and prod at us. And God allows it to happen so that we can mature. Because we always have the choice on how we're going to react. 
how, what we're going to do. I tell a lot of my students, you're only in charge of you. You can only be in charge of yourself. You can't worry about JJ or what Ethan's doing or Jenny back there. It's just you. Just you and God and what you're going to do with them in your life. So wisdom, do you have it? Let's look at verses 5 through 8. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all liberally without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That's a lot right there. We can spend two weeks just talking about that. Don't think is this wisdom that you're going to get. We talked about Solomon on Wednesday nights. What did Solomon ask from God? He asked for wisdom. He needed wisdom to lead his people, to lead Israel. But, like so many of us, pastors are not exempt. We get enticed by the things of this world. Solomon was enticed by his wives who led him astray. We also looked at Ahab just last week and Elijah. Elijah had to go tell him, you're wrong. Jezebel is leading you down the wrong path. I want you to go worship other idols, other gods. Now you may think, well, Matt, we're not kneeling down before some golden statue or calf and praising it. But think about this for a second. What are you doing? What is taking your attention from God? Is it your games? Is it your sports? Friends? Social media? What's, what has your time? Whatever you spend your time doing, that's your idol. That's your thing. It's what you believe in. It's what you trust. To believe in God and trust in God is to have faith. Faith is believing in something that's not seen, which is sometimes really hard to do. So, this, this isn't the kind of wisdom that's from studying a book. It's the kind of wisdom that you get living through adversities and trusting in God. That you're only going to get when you go through the different trials. You don't know how you're going to react. You don't know what's going to be thrown your way. This wisdom comes from life and living it to the fullest going through those trials, trusting in God, getting knocked down, hitting the mouth, dirt thrown in your face, but then getting back up, remembering whose you are, dusting yourself off, and continuing your walk. That's the signs of a mature Christian. What are you going to do when you get knocked down? It's going to happen. You're going to sin. And the way the devil really likes to get at Christians is he likes our sin to be public. He likes other people to find out about it. So that then they can say, ha, told you you weren't a Christian. You can't believe, you just, you just did this, you just sinned. How can you be saved? Guys, that's your opportunity. We get to tell these people, I'm saved because I have a Father in Heaven who loves me, who sent His Son to die on the cross for me. 
And that it doesn't matter what trials come my way. It doesn't matter what temptations. I may mess up. I'm going to mess up. I promise. But I'm going to get back up. I'm going to ask for forgiveness. And I'm going to move on. You show those people that doubt you in your life that, they won't be able to call you a hypocrite. They won't be able to call you a liar. That's the wisdom that James is talking about here in 5 through 8. Don't be that doubting man. Don't be unstable in all your ways. Don't be double-minded. We talked about kind of the the double-minded thing. How you act one way here, you act one way with your friends, one way at school, one way when you're talking with your parents. That's being double-minded. The Bible also says, don't be lukewarm or I'll spew you from my mouth. That was God. He wants you to be hot or cold. Pick one. Either be for him or not. But make a choice. Don't sit in the middle. Don't teeter back and forth. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. That's Proverbs 3, 5. That's a promise right there. That's a promise verse from God. We trust in him. We have faith in him. He will make our path straight. Now, there are requirements to receive this wisdom from God. It says it right here in the verses. Let's go to verse 6. Verse 6 says, But let him ask in faith, no, with no doubting. So he has to ask in faith. He's got to believe it's going to happen. And he can't doubt. For he who doubts is a wave of the sea tossed by the wind. So like I told you earlier, some, some people tell me it just seems like my prayers are hitting the ceiling. Guys, when, it's, when it seems that way, it's a heart issue. You have unconfessed sin in your life? Or is there, is there a barrier keeping you from God? Because I promise you, we're walking on this walk with God. He's walking right beside us. There's an old poem called Footprints. It talks about two sets of footprints in the sand. And then the guy asked, he goes, God, why, why when everything was great, there was always two sets of footprints? He's like, well, I was, with, I was with you. I was walking with you. Well, God, what happened when there was only one and I felt so alone and I was under attack and beat down and weak? There was only one set of footprints in the sand. And he said, that's when I carried you, my son. Guys, we have to have faith that the Lord will bring us through, or else we're not worthy to receive any blessing from him. So, let's take a look at 9 through 11. There's no better way than to trust in God than when you have nowhere else to turn. So, doubting is speaking about that internal struggle, that wanting to go towards God, or that pull to the world. That's that internal struggle. That's the doubting that it's talking about in James. We're going to talk about the perspective next. So we've talked about profiting from trials and having that joy. We've talked about asking for the wisdom of God through those trials so we know what to do. We talked about not doubting when we ask, but to ask by faith and believe that he will answer. Now the next section, 9 through 11... 
It says, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flowers falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Now you may be thinking, okay, that's Greek to me. I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, guys, what it's talking about here is having the right perspective. So let's, for example, the world's perspective on being profitable or being successful. What does the world say that we have to do to be successful? Make lots of money, drive fancy cars, date beautiful women, boats, big toys, right? It's about what you can get, about what you can accumulate, right? That's the world's perspective. You think God's perspective is a little different? Now, he may have it. Ethan, you may be set by God to be the richest man on the planet. Maybe. You may be the poorest. You may be somewhere in the middle. We don't know. You may make you may make lots of money. But there's warnings here. When you take what the world's definition of successful is and you line it up to God's, they don't match up. So what happens then when they don't match up? Well, according to the entire New Testament, not to mention evidence in history, suggests that riches and what comes with them is one of the biggest pitfalls to a Christian. You know that? Riches entice many a Christian away from God because what happens when we have all that money, we can go buy whatever we want, we can do whatever we want. You can buy your way out of trouble if you want. Who are we relying on then? Yourself, right? You're not trusting in God that he's going to get you out of it. You don't believe that he's going to pull you through because you can pay for it yourself. Not now. Wednesday nights when we can go back and forth. What? What? Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right. He was, but guess what? He lost everything because exactly what we're talking about here. His focus went away from God. God gave him the wisdom to see and to know right from wrong. But even somebody who had that much wisdom from God can still be enticed away. Think back to James, what we just talked about. James lived with Jesus, grew up with him, spent and still didn't believe. Think about that. Day in and day out with this man, seeing miracles, seeing the things he done, hearing the way he talks. Right. So, yep, it seems too perfect, so he didn't believe. But if you don't believe me that riches can be bad, well, let's see what Scripture has to say. Luke twelve fifteen says, A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He's telling you right there. doesn't matter what you have. doesn't matter how many things you have, because they're all going to go away. They're all temporary. Luke 6, 15 what is highly valued among men is detestable. It's disgusting in God's sight. 
Take Paul. Paul is probably one of the greatest, if not the greatest, example of a Christian and how we, we should live. He said all of his best works, all the things that he did for God, dirty rags. That's how he described them. They're dirty rags. We did talk about it some. Also says in Revelation 3.17, You say I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Yeah, pretty blunt. Even in Matthew thirteen twenty two, The one who receives the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word. But the worries of his life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. Jesus said, by my fruit, you'll know me. You'll know his followers by the fruit that their lives produce. Loving God under trials, though, verses 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he bought us forth by the word of truth that we might be kind of first fruits of his creation. Now that was a lot. Now remember the wisdom we talked about earlier. Now's a good time to use some. So having the right perspective is what matters. What perspective are you having? Are you having the world or God's? So if you don't have the right perspective, it means you're not allowing God to use that temptation or use that trial for your benefit, which, to be perfectly honest, might make that trial or temptation be a lot longer. God's going to have you learn your lesson one way or another, whether you have to go over it again and again, and again, and again. He's going to get your attention one way. JJ and I's whole job is to try to give you those shortcuts, if you will, a shortcut, I guess. is Well, we'll go that route. <laughs> a shortcut to avoiding some of these pitfalls and some of these snares by reminding you that you have to trust in God and what he says and his word. Now, you can go in one of two directions from a trial. You can respond with disobedience, falling into temptation and sinning, which eventually equals and leads to death. Or you can respond with obedience, using the temptation and trials to grow to maturity. Proverbs 19.3, a man's own folly ruins his life. There's that word again, own. It's your own. Yet his heart rages against the word of the Lord. We are our own worst enemy. 
we get in the way. When it seems like you're lost or things aren't going right, God didn't walk away from you. He didn't leave you. We walked away from him. He's standing right where we left him. Sometimes we just need to go back. Now there's qualities needed in trials. Verses 19 through 20. So then, my beloved brethren. There it is again. Beloved brethren. James never name dropped. He never said, yo, you know me? I'm Jesus' brother. Never did that. Never wrote a book. Never put a bumper sticker on his wagon. Jesus is bro. He didn't do that. Didn't need to. Instead, he says, my brethren, my brothers. He says it 19 times in these five chapters. And he wants you to know, he's talking to fellow believers, to Jews and Gentiles, Christians is who he's talking to. He says, my brothers. So, so then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That is the qualities that are needed in trials. Let every man and woman be swift to hear, listen first, slow to speak. Sometimes we just want to blurt out whatever's right in our mouth. We have no filter. Be slow to speak and slow to wrath. Don't get angry. What does it profit you? Well, it says right here. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You walk around angry all the time and give an attitude. That's not the righteousness of God. That's going again with the world, not God's standards. We got to be doers of the word, not hearers. Verses 21 through 27, and we'll wrap up with this. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive the meekness, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes, observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into a per, the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious, does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. That section has a lot in it. It starts off at the beginning, therefore lay aside the filthiness and overflow of wickedness, but instead receive the meekness of the implanted word. Now pay attention to that, implanted word. You ever heard the phrase, garbage in, garbage out? Put a lot of garbage into your head, that's what's going to come out of your mouth. 
You listen to a lot of rap, cussing, swearing. You watch those bad movies. It's what's going to come out. It has to. It's got to go somewhere. But instead, it wants you to receive meekness. Be humble. Be kind. Look after widows and orphans. Do the right thing. Now that whole, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. Guess what? You're hearing the word right now. You're hearing the law of God right now. And this is talking to us. It's talking to me. It's talking to JJ, to Jenny, to all of you. We've heard the law. Now guess what? We're responsible for it. Once you hear it, it wants you to be a doer. You don't want to deceive yourself or deceive anybody else. And then it says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks in the mirror. Imagine this. Going to look in the mirror, looking at your face, and then turning around and forgetting what you look like. Guys, I want you to know who you are. More importantly, I want you to know whose you are. That's the most important thing in this life is to know whose you belong to. We have our mother and father here, and they're great. But you have a father in heaven who sacrificed everything. I'm a father now, so I can, I can relate a little bit. I couldn't even imagine sacrificing my son for any reason. But that didn't stop God. He sent him down here anyway. Jesus even tried to get out of it at one point, kind of. But he says, not my will, but yours be done. Guys, that's what I want you to focus on this week. Let God's will be done. What kind of perspective do you have right now in closing? Do you have the right perspective? Do you have that wisdom? Are you looking at life from a worldly view? Or a godly one? What perspective do you have? Are you in the middle of a trial? Things tough right now? Well, if you're not in the middle of a trial now, remember that word, when. They're coming. We're going to, your kids, your young adults, you're in youth group now. You're going to have all kinds of trials and all that come through you. A lot of them are going to come through school and through friends and things that you're going to see. I want you to trust on the wisdom that can only come from God and through clinging to Him in the midst of a trial. Don't let temptation give birth to sin and death in your life. Instead, let those trials be used for spiritual growth so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just I pray, Lord, that whether we're in the middle of a trial right now, Lord, whether things are difficult, Lord, that you just help us remember that perspective needs to be on you no matter what. And Lord, when things get tough, that we remember it's you that is pulling us through. It's not our strength getting us by, Lord. It's yours. And God, just let us remember that gift, that gift of eternal life that you gave us through your son, Jesus Christ, Lord. And I just pray that we don't neglect that gift. But instead, Lord, we go to the rooftops and we shout it. And we tell the world and we tell our friends and we tell our family. And that we remember James. And that hope is never lost. 
There's always time until it's gone. God, I pray that we use our time wisely and for you, Lord. I pray that you put a hedge of protection around each of these kids as they they go through the rest of their week and weekend, Lord, that they find those opportunities, Lord, that they can talk about you and praise you. And God, be with their families, their parents, their friends. I don't know what they're going through, Lord. You do. And I pray that the focus stays on you. And we ask all these in your precious and holy Son's name. Amen.